HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Catskill Provisions. Located in a small corner of northwest Catskill Mountains, they specialize in creating raw, all-natural, handmade food products. For more information, visit CatskillProvisions.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Andrew Friedman, uh, who a lot know from Tokeland, which is an amazing, I don't even know what to call it because it's more than a website. It's just, it's like the tomes of great chefs. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah, thank mean, you. How many books have you written? It's been about, over a dozen. It's about 25. 25. Mostly collaborations, though. Yeah. So, dozen, maybe we count them as. You know, 0.5 each. Yeah, but, you know, a collaboration takes a lot of effort and a lot of yourself, too. So that whole co-authored thing uh, yeah. doesn't lessen the amount of work Thank that you. goes All right, so it. we'll call it 25. Yeah, 25. More than and counted. Digits. And counted. That's, it's, it's an amazing task. You know, walking into a, a situation or a meeting with a chef or uh, you know, possible collaborator, do you tell them what kind of a beast a cookbook is? Yeah, it's funny. I... Um that's usually how I end up getting the job yeah. because, you know, you sit – and I hear all the time from other people who want to do this or maybe have done one book and, they, and they'll, they'll give you this litany of meetings they've had of books that never happened, yeah. you know, because they have a meeting and then the chef kind of gets sucked back into their world. And, you know, what I always say to chefs is, you know, at some point in a, in a first-time meeting, a chef will say, you know, I wanted to meet with you, but it's, it's just not a great time right now. And the first thing I always say is, it's never a good time no. for you. If you want to do a book – Let's go. Yeah, you know, and because uh, I think they all really sort of need that push, uh, or they'll kind of come to their senses and not do it. I mean, obviously they they have cooking at heart, um, but why are they so much more prone to opening a restaurant than writing a book? Is it a skill set thing? Is it you know? Well, first of all, I mean they probably need the restaurant unless they're you know someone who's on television a yeah. lot. They need that platform, as the publishing people say, to be able to sell a book. 
Um, and then, you know, I hear it from all the time. I hear from chefs constantly how much they hate writing recipes. You know, they hate – most chefs cook very instinct, instinctually. They don't uh, – they don't certainly not during service, I and mean, maybe if they're making a terrine or something like that. But you know, when they're cooking, cooking, live cooking, they're not sitting there with t- tablespoons and cup measures and looking at a clock, and and that's what you have to do to write a cookbook. Everything has to be measured, timed, uh, you know, recorded in that very painstaking way. And if it doesn't work the first time, you have to do it again. Yeah, you know, just to find out. Oh, we needed another half teaspoon of lemon juice yeah. in that sauce. And most chefs can't stand cooking that way it's anathema to them i don't personally like it myself i do like <laughs> writing recipes i don't i actually have kind of a perverse pleasure in in creating order out of that chaos yeah. um but i can see why chefs don't want to do that i was just the other day um with a couple of guys actually from new york uh and san francisco out in of all places yosemite national park doing some cooking demonstrations and um uh, Thomas Keller's French Laundry Cookbook was among the collection at the side of the stage. And one of the chefs who was demonstrating, uh, a guy named uh, Lawrence Jossel from Nopa Restaurant in San Francisco, was saying how much he hates recipes. Um, and I was reminded of this line in the introduction to the French Laundry Cookbook where Keller talks about, he has this great line, um, I guess we should maybe say Keller, Keller and Roman have this great line, um, that recipes have no soul. You know, when you cook, you have to bring your soul to the to the stoves and recipes are so exacting and so stripped down that um, you really even I say this even as someone who writes recipes you're never really should probably follow a recipe to the letter <laughs> there's always going to be that thing you do that makes whether it's a little more garlic whether it's something you throw you know scatter over a dish at the end an herb you like or or whether you like your garlic toasted instead of uh, you know clean and white uh, whatever it is you got to bring that to your cooking or it's going to be missing a little something. Yeah. I think that's why – that's a long answer to your question. I think that's why chefs are a little um, repelled by cookbooks as much as they're drawn to them. I mean, because they all grow up like you and I with with a certain you know uh, attachment to food. Yep. And that's where the soul is. Did you have that growing up? Were you a foodie per se? Were you a culinary writer uh, on a journey? No, I um, – uh, no, I grew up on fast food. I, I grew up with, uh, I had a uh, single working mother who would come home exhausted and usually either whip something up really fast uh, or, you know, drop a bag of Wendy's on the dining table, you know, or the kitchen table. And that was how I grew up. No, I grew up, I mean, very typical probably for people of my, you know, generation, grew up in, in not a very food savvy household. Uh, the only real food that I was exposed to, although I didn't appreciate it for that at the time, was my stepmother was actually originally from Cuba and had a huge Cuban-American family down in Miami where I grew up. And when they would get, she would cook Cuban food all the time. And I, I didn't, you know, Miami, there's a lot of Cuban food all over the place, but that was kind of my first kind of exposure to sort of an authentic, slightly exotic food experience but i kind of took it for granted yeah um but i loved when she would cook and and they would uh on thanksgiving they would combine cuban and american so we'd have a turkey and we'd have black beans and rice you know and yucca yeah and some kind of sweet potato dish and i i just loved that um but apart from that i had really zero interest in food um uh, just you know, really, absolutely no sophistication about it, no exposure to fine food, zero, absolutely zero. Well, I mean, you came 
to New York for your formal education, getting a BA at Columbia. Um, in that, you know, writing, did you ever expressively use those experiences? I mean, did you, you know, try to use that food culture as some kind of impetus for a story, for prose, for poems? I never did. The one thing I loved, um, and it's a very shallow part of me, but I'll, I'll uh, confess here on Heritage Radio Network. <laughs> I, it's it's when free I, therapy. When I yeah. came to New York and started going to restaurants, I loved, uh, I loved going to restaurants in New York City. That was something I really loved. I didn't know anything about the food, but I loved it. And, uh, and I can still remember the first time I ever went to a restaurant and the, and the hostess uh, remembered my name just because she had taken my name down yeah. so many times. <laughs> And I thought that was really cool. What restaurant was it? It's that? embarrassing. No, no, please embarrass yourself. Well, I used to go to the movies. I was, I was actually thought I was going to be in the film business, and I used to very often go to the movies, um, you know, in, uh, near Bloomingdale's, you know, like Cinema 1, 2, and 3, yeah. and all those theaters. And very often we would go to Serendipity on 60th Street and get a, you know, a frozen hot chocolate or something before we went back to the dorms. You know, you can ask any chef in the city that's been in New York long enough. It's ridiculous that they haven't stopped by there and had one of those. It's really good. It's like having a molten really chocolate good. cake. I mean, even though it's like this culture mem now, and it, it, it's in uh, Applebee's, I think, of all places. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, everyone's had a uh, molten chocolate cake. Somewhere. So, uh, uh, no, I'm sorry. I'm a, no, no, no. Frozen hot chocolate. Frozen, Frozen hot, hot chocolate. chocolate. Yeah. yeah. But we, um, uh, when I used to go there, uh, you know, you had, it was always packed, so you always had to give your name. And I remember walking in one night, and the woman said, Mr. Friedman, we haven't seen... You know, I was like six, 17 years old, 18 years old. And um, even there, I thought that was, uh, that was cool. Yeah. So, I mean, what was that cachet of cool? Were you drawn to, not the chef's life then, but, you know, something about that service industry? I, lo- I, just, loved, uh, I just loved all kinds of restaurants. I loved when they worked, you know? There was something about a restaurant where... The dining room felt like it was in good hands, and, and it was humming, and the food came out at the right pace. And, you know, whether it was a casual place or – I didn't – you know, I have to say even it, – it wasn't until I was probably almost 30 that I started going to, you know, New York Times, even probably two-star restaurants with any kind of frequency um, – because uh, at that time, I'd stumbled into a job uh, just to pay the rent with a public relations firm, and they happened to be a firm that specialized in restaurant and food accounts. Yeah. And um, so all of a sudden, I was representing and working with some great chefs, and that's when I, that was my first exposure to food. I mean, eventually you went to, what is it, the uh, ICE? The I went to the French Culinary the Institute. French Culinary, yeah. yeah. which is now part of the, where is it on the wall? The Institute of, uh, the International Culinary Center. Yeah, so many yeah. acronyms, either FCI, yes. ICE, yeah. Yeah, but um, I went to, when it was just the FCI, I went uh, to the, the La Technique program. Based off of Jacques Pepin's lot exactly. Technique. Yeah, exactly. Why did you do that? Was it well what, because you wanted to cook? Well, what had happened was um, very long story boiled down. I was working as a publicist. Just I wanted to be. I wanted to be a screenwriter, and had worked in the film business for a bunch of years, and uh, kind of wasn't working out. Was kind of getting a little tired of the industry, and I thought, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna write prose. I'm gonna write a novel or something like that. And I literally had no idea what to do to make a living. And, 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 and I say this was even before Mad Men, I, just from movies and whatnot. I thought, well, I'm an out-of-work writer. I'm going to go work at an ad agency or a PR firm. I just yeah. didn't know what else to do. I figured that's what you do. And I answered an ad in the New York Times and went to work for a – he's not in the business anymore, but a guy named David Kratz, who a lot of the top PR 
people in New York who represent restaurants started there. We were all there together. And, uh, and next thing I knew from answering an ad in the New York Times, I was representing Alfred Portali at the Gotham Bar and Grill. And uh, Alan Harding, before he had migrated to Brooklyn, at a place called Nosmo King, uh, which was kind of a cute way of saying no smoking. You just kind of moved the space over. It was on Canal Street. Um, and a company called Terra Chips, which at the time was operating out of a very modest space here in Brooklyn before they were a big national company. Uh, Marcus Samuelson, when he first showed up at Aquavit, was a client. Uh, I represented Rocco Despirito uh, before Union Pacific. Um, and, uh, you know, I was around these guys and, and uh, very quickly got the food bug. Yeah. And um, Alfred Portali from the Gotham and I um, had a really great, and still do, great relationship. And when he was in a pinch, if he had to write a speech or write a difficult letter, he would ask me to help him out. And for whatever reason, I don't know if it's because I had written the screenplays and I don't want to get too you know artsy fartsy about why, but I, I had an aptitude for getting people's voice down, yeah. or at least what they thought of as their voice. And so he ended up asking me to help him work on the, his cookbook, which became the Gotham Barn Girl cookbook. Um, and that was the first thing I ever got paid to do in my life was that cookbook. Yeah, and it was it was quite the cookbook. Thank you. Won, won a couple accolades, We right? did okay. We did IC, okay. I, IACP. Uh, yeah, we were nominated for the Beard Award. We won the IACP Award, um, also called the Julia Child Cookbook Award. And uh, I thought, you know what? That was fun. Yeah. <laughs> and people seem to like it. I'm going to quit my day job and see if I can make a go of this, uh, you know, food writing thing. And that was what, 97 that came out. Book came out in 97. And uh, yeah, I quit my job uh, actually just before going out to Portland for the ICP Awards. Yeah. And you've done two more books with Alfred yes. uh, since. Yes. So uh, he's been a good client to you. Alfred's been... And a uh, wonderful friend, it seems. Yeah, Alfred's been great, and he's also a good tennis opponent. <laughs> Which is another hobby of yours, <laughs> yes. and we'll talk about that soon. But, you know, the reason why Tokeland started was because you thought you wanted to chronicle with more chefs, collaborate on cookbooks, or... Was it kind of like this fertile ground that you were testing? Uh, so Tokeland, which is my website, which I started uh, really in earnest a year ago, but which um, I originally launched uh, a, a year prior to that and just didn't realize what I was getting into and I hadn't really, I didn't keep it up and I just kind of let it die on the vine. You know, it was just, I always liked the idea of doing a website or a blog or I think that Tokeland probably exists somewhere in, in, the, in between those two things, but... Um, I never kind of knew what to do, and at one night I was out um, with a chef friend of mine at a restaurant, and the chef in the kitchen was visiting us, and uh, it was I was out with Gavin Kazin from Cafe Balud, and we went to Veritas, and Sam Hazen was there, and you know they were kind of talking shop, and I was talking shop a little bit with them, and I just had this moment where I thought, you know, I this is just my life, this is I'm sure for you also, you know, this, I run into these people all the time, I don't really think about it. But it occurred to me, that's not most people's lives, and maybe people would kind of like to read about this. Yeah. Um, and I just thought, you know, I'm going to start this site where I write about chef encounters and what it's like to be out to dinner with chefs, and, and what I've documented a little bit of what's it like to write a book proposal, or what's the writing process like uh, during a collaboration, and um, just kind of a place for me to kind of air all that stuff out. And it's been great. I mean, people seem to really like it, and most of the people... 
you know, I hear from and, and a lot of the people, most of the people who follow me either on Twitter or Facebook, whatever, it's, it's overwhelmingly chefs and culinary students, uh, which I love, yeah. which I just love. So it's just a place, you know, because I didn't come up through the magazine or newspaper ranks, I, I never really had that network to sell journalistic pieces. I, it just didn't. I've done a lot of books, but I, did, I just didn't have that, that past. And I just kind of thought, you know what, screw it. I'm going to create my own place to do that and uh, just get it out there. Yeah. So, that, so that's what it is. Well, I mean, also the cast of chefs that you work with is pretty extraordinary, and we'll get Thanks. to that after the break. Um, but I really just wanted to touch on one more thing. Sure. It's not all just collaboration. You've done uh, a couple books. You've done Knives at Dawn, uh, following the book Hudor, um, yes. which actually just ended this year. Yes. Uh, I think you followed, what, 2009 with I was, Hollingsworth? Yeah, I was in, embedded yeah. <laughs> uh, with the 2009 USA Boku's Door team uh, from the weekend they got picked in the U.S. tryouts uh, through uh, when they went and competed in Lyon, France, and that was my book Knives at Dawn. Um, and then I'm working right now on my second nonfiction book, which is an oral history of the first famous American restaurant chefs. Uh, so it's the chefs of the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Um, and that's a book that I'm working on right now for uh, Dan Halpern at Echo Press. Awesome. Who were they? Like, were there New Yorkers? Were there, are you working nationally about which chefs or restaurateurs well, influence? I mean, the book will be will be very much nat- the whole U.S. Uh, most concentrated probably New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, uh, but also you know guys like Norman Van Aken down in Florida, who yeah. I think is you know really sort of a prototype of the modern American restaurant chef. You know, someone who you know Norman was doing um, you know what he calls Floribian or whatever you want to call it, but he was you know, doing his interpretation of Florida cuisine in a white tablecloth restaurant uh, down in Key West in 1981. I mean, that's ahead of your time. Yeah. Um, Paul Prudhomme in New Orleans might have been, you know, our first, in in a lot of ways, maybe the first celebrity chef uh, in America. Um, Guys like Dean Fearing in Texas, Rick Bayless in Chicago. I mean, there's guys all over the place. Um, uh, but again, the greatest concentration, probably L.A., San Francisco, and New York. Well, we're going to take a quick break, come back, talk about some of the chefs you've worked with in the past, your current roster, Great. and see who's going to be changing the restaurant future of this country. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. Both the theme and the break song for the food scene is by Cookies, a song called Summer Jam. Thanks to Cookies for contributing music to the food scene. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
Catskill Provisions has Valentine's Day literally in the bag with their Seal the Deal gift bag. Start with chocolate honey truffles and then move on to breakfast in bed with their traceable organic pancake mix and New York State maple syrup. Sure to satisfy any ardent locavore, check out the Catskill Provisions Seal the Deal package at www.catskillprovisions.com. Hey, and welcome back to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here with Andrew Friedman of Tokeland. And just going through, you know, all these chefs that you work with, you know, starting with Alfred Portale, uh, Tom Valenti, David Waltock, Terrence Brennan, Michelle Bernstein, Laurent Torrendell, Bill Telepan. Holy crap. Good friends all. Yeah, good food to him, I'm assuming. Yeah, it doesn't suck. <laughs> it's a good gig. It doesn't suck on that front. How did you navigate the scene, not having that network? I mean, and then even like Walter Scheid, the former White House chef. Uh, right. Uh, did your name get around? Did you find people and seek them out? Um, it's funny. I knew a lot of the people I worked with uh, initially are people I knew from my PR life, to be honest. I mean, Tom Valenti had been my client, and uh, Alfred was my client, and Pino Luongo was my client, um, who I also wrote with. Um Bill Telepan had been the sous chef at the Gotham Bar and Grill, so hadn't been my client, but you know saw me coming around in my suit and tie, in my suit and tie days um, a lot, and uh, and then jobs would kind of beget other jobs. Um, uh, I did a book uh, with a literary agent named Kim Witherspoon uh years ago uh called don't try this at home which was kitchen disaster stories from 40 chefs yeah and about a dozen of those chefs uh you know were people like tony bourdain and gabrielle hamilton and dan barber who wrote their own stories and the other were people who tend to hire collaborators and so i helped them with those stories and i was interviewing michelle bernstein for that book she was in miami and i was in my apartment in chelsea at the time and, you know, in the middle of the interview, she said, you know, I really like the way you're interviewing me. I'm looking for a collaborator. Could we sit down? And I said, well, I happen to be from Miami. I'm going to be there in a couple of weeks. Let's have a coffee. And, you know, we did a book. Yeah. Um, my, my favorite story, though, is probably um, Jimmy Bradley and I were doing the Red Cat Cookbook. Um, and we, to be honest, wanted to save money, so we didn't hire a recipe tester. We t- decided we were going to test ourselves. I lived at the time on the same block that the Red Cat is on. Um, and we would test, we decided we were going to test every Wednesday, every other Wednesday night in the prep kitchen at the Red Cat. And Jimmy says to me, uh, you know, I'm going to bring in this guy from the Harrison. He's a sous chef and he's going to help us out. And that guy was a young cook by the name of Harold Dieterle. And uh, Harold and I hit it off right away, and you know, usually we'd finish cooking, and and the three of us would go out either dr- to drink or to eat, or sometimes we'd kind of blow off the testing and go out to eat at <laughs> eight o'clock. Um, and you know, Harold used to say to me, you know, when I when I'm my own chef and I have restaurants, I'm going to do a book. You know, you're going to do my book with me, and I said sure. And then we finished the book, and he took a sabbatical or a, a leave of absence from the Harrison to go do this show that was coming up that we had never heard of called Head Chef or Top Cook or something like that. And of course, it ended up being Top Chef. And he won the first season and left his job and opened Perilla Restaurant. And anyway, he and I are now doing uh, a cookbook together. Uh, yeah. we're, you know, we're in, the, we're in the thick of it. Well, I mean, talking about time investment, you know, about these things being large and long-term projects, 
jumping on a bandwagon is not necessarily the right thing to do because a lot of chefs have those alliances already. Or right. Have those people in their life already. Yeah. And do you find it easier to collaborate and find that voice for a person that you already have a rapport with? Or can you do the same with someone that you just, you know, meet and are blindly hooked up with? You know, uh, it can work either way. Was it Confucius? I'm not trying to say. I think it was Confucius. I'm not. I don't know if it was. I think it was. There's some line I always love. Like you'll know your best friends better in a minute than you'll know like an acquaintance. You know, over the course of your life or something like that. Some people you click with, and some people you don't. Yeah. And um, uh, the one thing I have learned over the years that I cannot uh, work around is um, a point of view. That's what I'm always looking for. Is someone who's got a very well-defined point of view, which is not that hard, you know, these days, um, because it's kind of what it takes to become a well-known chef in most cases. Um, but somebody who really um, kind of, you know, is expressing themselves on, on the plate in, in a very um, organic way, and I don't mean organic ingredients, but I mean there's something about them that's coming out in their cooking, um, and they have something to say about cooking. Um, that is the thing I cannot manufacturer and that's kind of what i'm always looking for that and and people who aren't no shows yeah i don't do no shows very well <laughs> two other well i almost no show today <laughs> goddamn g train that could have been uh, my big moment though <laughs> yeah just you could have taken over the food scene <laughs> the food scene now with andrew Friedman. we've rented your room son <laughs> two other chefs that you're currently working with uh paul lieberman and michael white yes what are their point of views and why are you so excited to work with them well I mean, the first thing I should say about Paul's book is that it's not a cookbook. Uh, it's a book that uh, is telling Paul's uh, story, although he's adamant that we not call it a memoir because he's <laughs> too young for that. Um, and uh, he is very young to have accomplished what he has. Damn him. But, um, uh, you know, Paul's point of view... Well, first of all, Paul's food is, is speaks for itself. Uh, it's utterly unique. The way he looks at food and thinks <laughs> about food... Um, uh, he almost thinks about food the way you or I think about people. You know, that's kind of how he regards uh, ingredients and, and the way he thinks about dishes or maybe the way uh, – it's maybe the way I would think about a short story or if I were lucky enough to be a poet, it maybe the way I would think about a poem in terms of mood and tone. Um, it's, it's very um, deep, I think, uh, without – you know, but it's not tortured. It's not manufactured. It's just the way he, he – uses food the way we use most people use language you know it's 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 quite special and you know a lot of the book and i'm not again i'm not being falsely modest here i think a lot of the book is going to very much ride on the great photography that evan sung has done for us um and then telling just his story and how he kind of turned into this this uh, talent that he has um so that's what I think that book offers and the other thing in terms of it not being a cookbook from but from a point of view standpoint is you know i was talking to our the woman who ended up being uh, our editor who bought the book um, when she was pondering buying the book and she was someone I knew and she called me on my cell phone and, and she said, you know, I've been following Paul for years, but what is it that you like about, you know, what do you respond to in Paul? And, you know, one of the things that I really respond to with him is that I think he is, you know, he's only about 35 and, but he's put in, he put in so much time in the kitchen before he would even think about calling himself a chef um, and I don't want to sound like an old fart about this <laughs> stuff, but, you know, I mean, he put in, you know, 
two years with Marco Pierre White, and before that, two years at L'Escargot Restaurant in London, and then two, uh, almost two years with Raymond Blanc, and then you know Pierre Gagnier in, in, in Paris, and then he comes to New York. He works for David Boulet. He worked for Jean-Georges von Richten in London before he came here. Um, and then he was a chef, you know? And I feel like that sort of discipline, that was pretty normal 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, and the, the line I said to this um, editor I was talking to, I said, you know, these days, anybody who can come up with a tapas menu is is a chef, and um, and I kind of respond to that in him. He's very kind of old school for someone as as young as he is. Yeah, he's he's and, definitely an old soul. Yeah, and I think that is not a bad message to have out there. You know that that uh, uh, I mean he his food is so technique dependent that I think he probably had to put in those years to do what he does. Um, but even people who aren't, you know, I'm. We were talking, I'm writing this book about the 70s and 80s, and, you know, even a guy like Jonathan Waxman, who you go to Barbudo restaurant, and his food looks so stripped down and so simple, and really that's what he got known for years ago at Michael's Restaurant in Los Angeles. But, you know, Jonathan put in his time in, in Europe as well. You know, you don't think of him as a guy like that. Yeah. You think of him as a guy in a t-shirt and a apron, you know, in a kitchen in Santa Monica, you know, with some good music on and a glass of rosé, and he's just whipping up stuff, but... You know, that's all founded in a lot of hard work and, and, and education. And so that that part of Paul's story, I think, is also, um, you know, relevant and useful. And, and Michael White is just simply, you know, he's he's an Italian walking around in a in a offensive tackles body. You know, <laughs> he's just this he's as passionate about food as anybody I've ever met in my life. Not just Italian food, although having spent time with him in Italy this summer, his um, assimilation of Italian food is, is, uh, is quite something. And the, the book we've done is, you talk about point of view, it's, it's, it's basically two books in one. So half of the book is Michael's recipes for about a hundred or so essential Italian dishes. Um, you know, they're dishes a lot of people will know, but as is the cliche about Italian food, you know, if you go house to house in Italy, <clears throat> excuse me, if you go house to house in Italy, every house will have a different recipe. These are his. And then the other half of the book are his recipes for modern interpretive Italian food along the lines of what he does at Morea or I Fiori. And um, I think that his point of view is it's both. You know, he's someone who has this reverence for the old ways. He's also... An Amer- modern American cook who staked out Italian food is his turf, and uh, and that's his playground, you know. So he didn't want to have one without the other. Yeah. So there's a lot of cross-referencing. So you'll see a recipe in the modern part of the book, and it'll say, to see the dish that this, you know, was kind of inspired by, go to page 35, and you'll go to 35, and you'll see the, the kind of the straight-up classic version you know, done that way and shot in Italy in most cases uh, when we were over there this summer. So... Is that all it takes? What you just told me about Michael White or what you just told me about Paul, is that how you pitch a cookbook? Could you give like a two-minute, you know, uh, preface of the best way to propose an idea? Sure. For chefs. Yeah. Uh, The word that I – well, sure. But the the thing I'd say first is things have changed a lot. Uh, When I first started doing this for a living, it it was great. It was just, it was wide open, as they say. And, uh, you know, if you ha- if you were a chef with a two-star New York Times restaurant and a good agent, you could probably sell the, you know, the Michael's restaurant, you know, I'm not talking Michael Santa Monica, I'm going to say you, Michael, or me, the Andrew's restaurant 
cookbook, you could probably sell that, you know, and do uh, very component driven food, you know, like basically taking restaurant dishes and, and uh, translating them to home without a lot of adjustment. Um, things changed a lot in the early 2000s. And now, in most cases, the word, the word I usually use with chefs is bridge. I think you have to find an idea or a concept that takes what you do in your restaurant and what makes you who you are and bridge it to what home cooks can do. Uh, people aren't really looking for, I was joking the other day with, I was with traveling with these chefs and I made this comment, you know, when was the last time you saw a ring mold in a cookbook recipe, <laughs> you know? But like 10 years ago, every book, it was take a three-inch ring mold and, you know, put the thing in the middle of the plate and then put the frise lettuce on top and then, you know, fan the protein around. That's all, that's, for the most part, that's over. Yeah. I mean, there are exceptions. For the most part, people want, you know, elevated home cooking, let's say, from a chef, with a chef's flair and a chef's inspiration. Um, so the word I always use is bridge. So like years ago, I did a book with Laurent Torrendel uh, called Go Fish. And at the time, he was at Cello, uh, which was one of the more, uh, you know, uh, ex- uh, extravagant Upper East Side, right after La Bernadette, probably, at the time, in terms of New York uh, seafood restaurants. And we did this book, Go Fish, and it was, A, we made it, um, all the fish in the book was uh, things that were uh, caught in and around the United States, so either in rivers or uh, along the coasts of the U.S., um, so very easily obtainable stuff. Um, and then it was uh, recipes that were very slimmed down along the lines of, the kind of hook was that, that that's, um, the, the way he grew up eating very simple food in France, and we kind of took a lot of it back to that or stripped down what he did at Cello. Um, so I think uh, that bridge is absolutely essential. Uh, and then in terms of selling a book, once you come up with that concept, y- you need a good agent and um, and a collaborator in most cases, although some chefs have done very well writing for themselves. Uh, and then there's the proposal usually to be written uh, with very few exceptions. Uh, you have to write a proposal, which is what I usually refer to as the Cliff Notes version of the book. Uh, you know, a proposal is... Uh, you know, title page, uh, a sort of a synopsis or the pitch, which in my case is about a 10-page exercise, uh, a table of contents, a list of recipes, and then some actual sample content, you know, head notes, recipes, sidebars. None of it usually art-directed. You know, it's all just a very simple Word document. Uh, but someone who reads through that ought to be able to pretty much picture the whole book and decide whether or not they want to buy it and whether they think there'll be a market for it. And you have a recent blog post on Tokeland that kind of does that step-by-step step for people. Yeah, well, I had two. I, I did a, 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 a long article a while back where I talked about doing the proposal with Paul because we ended up spending about a year on it because it was an unusual thing that we were doing and it took us a while to figure out what just what the hell we wanted to do. Um, and then recently with Harold Dieterle, I, I have a couple of posts... Um, about uh, basically how we get stuff from his head to the page. You yeah. Know, with me as kind of the, the filter it goes through. Through extraction. Not painful, but... Not painful, <laughs> but... Uh, all pleasure. All, all fun. <laughs> all good fun. You mentioned at the beginning of the show books that never happened. Are yeah. there ones that you've worked on that just went into you know the ether that, that, that you regret not happening? Or ones that just you knew were a failure from the beginning? Uh, you mean things that I interviewed for or was up for? Either or? up for or concepted yourself and, uh, n- not, not really. I mean, there was a, there was a book, um, I had in mind years ago, um, 
that I may yet write one day. So I don't know if I well, I could talk about it. There's a book I wanted to always write called Palette, uh, where I would take a dozen chefs and just talk to them about how their palate evolved to until they were chefs. Um, in some ways, kind of you know, if you took what I'm doing with Paul, boiled that down, and then did you know a dozen other people, um, but it just kind of you know just kind of went by the wayside. I th- I, I don't know. I don't have a lot of regrets because I feel like. If I wanted to do it, I would have done it. You know, this this book I'm writing about the 70s and 80s uh, was an idea I had driving around um, Indian Wells, California, of all places, during a <laughs> tennis tournament. And uh, I was at a red light, and this idea popped into my head. But uh, originally, I wanted to cover 40 years instead of 20 years. Um, it was actually a, a publishing friend of mine gave me the idea to do it as oral history instead of as a straight narrative. Um and that, you know, those two things took about four years. I mean, I had the idea for almost four years before I got around to selling the project, but that stayed with me. You know, yeah. the other one didn't. You know, these things percolate. They percolate. I think, I don't know, maybe something in the back of my head knew the other one maybe would have gotten redundant after the third got. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I, I just, I try not to get too hung up on that. There have been one or two things I've interviewed for that I didn't get, and then I thought the book was... You know, usually it comes out and I think it's terrific, um, but I probably shouldn't say what those are. Yeah. It's better that you missed out on terrific projects than ones that were just terrible to begin with. Yeah. No, I uh, I mean, you know, I always say this, especially with the first book. You know, I, I've written more than two dozen books now. Um, I really feel like um, for the chefs, they're so important. And uh, I mean, this will sound a little trite and I don't mean for it to, but... You know, it's not like you don't get a job and you want the chef to like, you know, fail or something. You know, it's just, it, it's so important for their careers. And, you know, a lot of these people grew up just kind of loving cookbooks. For a lot of them, it was their first view of professional kitchen life or professional cooking. Um, so I'm always happy when things succeed. There was a book I was up for that came out, gosh, less than a year ago, and it was just great. And I was, it was a chef I've known for a long time, and I was very, Happy for that person. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a huge benchmark on a career. Yeah, huge. Well, and also, the first one's going to... It's very mercenary. You know, if you have lousy sales figures, you're probably not going to have another cookbook. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, th- I hope everyone's books do well, especially these days when, you know, it's not that easy to make a, a good run of it. Well, luckily, you have tennis. <laughs> and I just want to ask a quick question, because yeah. uh, I started reading the James Blake book. Ah. Um, how do you work differently in, in that form, in that genre, than you do with chefs, you know, with, with tennis, with athletes? Or is it the same kind of, you know, emotive uh, extraction? Uh, well, in that case, I mean, James is, for people who don't know, James Blake uh, is an uh, American tennis player who had a, just a horrible year. Uh, in 05, 06, he broke his neck. He lost his father. He had zoster, which is also called shingles. And... And we wrote a book about it. Uh, no, it was a very, very, actually, sim- the interview process was very similar. Uh, uh, you know, what I did with him, usually what I do with chefs is I call it the inside the actor studio phase. Like the first thing we do, I'm going through this right now. I'm, I'm going to try to do something with the, the, the guys at Battersby. We're going to try to do a book together. And, you know, the first thing I always want to do, since I'm going to be writing in the voice of somebody, is to kind of go through their their life. So... Um, we go through these kind of James Lipton-y, you know, interviews. Um, and, you know, that book was basically one long version of that, you know. And then, then there were no, you know, there were no recipes at the end of it. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, it was kind of doubling back and honing in on 
uh, the the periods of time that we needed to kind of drill down into. Um, but that was uh, that was an amazing experience. What I'm I'm told I didn't that was the first sports writing I'd ever done, um, if you could even call that book sports writing. Um, and then I started writing for Tennis Magazine. And uh, my understanding is that the kind of involvement that James actually had, which was immense, I mean, just incredibly involved, uh, is not necessarily the norm with athletes and their books. Um, and I will say chefs tend to be incredibly, as a rule, involved in their, in their books. So that's probably, I got lucky there. It probably would have been much more different with another, you know, with another athlete. Maybe I'd be interviewing their agent or something yeah. like that. Well, I want to end this show now with a Inside the Actors Studio-esque question. Sure. We'll call it Inside the Heritage Studio. Um, your favorite culinary word? My favorite culinary word? Or curse word, if you like. I told you, wow. you're not FCC regulated. Uh, my, can I just give you my favorite word? Yeah, let's hear it. My favorite word uh, has always been sprizzatura which is an Italian word. It's from uh, the Book of the Courtier. And it's, uh, I'm going to have to find it since probably college English, but I think it's, it, it's, it's this almost supernatural charm, you know, this ability to kind of influence people through your, your charm and, your, uh, and just your ways. And I always thought that was just an amazing word. And that's a wonderful quality for a chef to exude. And Thank you. So you'll make it culinary for me. Yeah. Sorry. No, my no. favorite culinary. I'm going to think of it the minute we sign off. <laughs> well, you can always call back in. We've got plenty of live shows. Thank you, Andrew, for being on. Michael, thanks uh, for having who's, me. Who, if you've never checked out Tokeland, I mean, and you want to become a cookbook author, this is the man to follow. Thank you. Um, you've been listening to the food scene on Heritage Radio Network.org. And Hope to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.